This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. I must be in a winter mood. I'm preparing a podcast for later this month or early next month on the post-apocalyptic novel The Road by Cormac McCarthy, and today I'm getting into a dystopian one. George Orwell's classic, classic feels like an understatement, 1984. These are not happy books. Maybe I need a hug. But... I'll plot on. 1984 is one of those texts about so much and about which so much has been said. I feel a little like I can't really add to the conversation and I'd be arrogant to try. However, this is a podcast on which I've discussed Shakespeare and the Bible. So lucky for you, I am arrogant enough to try. Now that said, I'm not going to talk about every idea that falls into the novel scope. There's too much. Too much has already been said. What I want to focus on in particular is the novel's treatment of language and ideas and why a book written about a once future that is now nearly 40 years in the past is still so very pertinent. If you haven't read the book, well, then this podcast episode will be way too confusing. But if you have, and it's been a bit, here's a refresher. The year is... Well, it's 1984. Possibly. It's possibly not 1984, but it's likely 1984. The place is London, part of a country now called Airstrip One, which is in Oceania, one of the three world superpowers along along with Eurasia and East Asia, a battle for dominance of the planet. Oceania is under the control of the party with a capital P, with its figurehead, ruler, big brother, who looks a lot like Joseph Stalin, but probably doesn't really exist at all. The official ideology of Oceania is Ingsoc, short for English socialism. And even more than his earlier novel, Animal Farm, 1984, shows Orwell's criticism of mid-20th century communism, particularly the communism which was basically a dictatorship under Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union. But of course, this novel is much more than that now. 1984 hasn't changed with the years, but the world has changed to be even more like 1984. Our protagonist is Winston Smith, a 39-year-old party member who works at the Ministry of Truth, a place where official lies are written. Winston is a member of the party, but this doesn't mean that much, just that he's above the proles in the social hierarchy. The proles are simplistic, even idiotic masses, little better than livestock. In fact, they are compared to animals. They are consumers. Winston writes stories about Oceano's never-ending war with, uh, with either uh, Eurasia or East Asia, Uh, a war which is conducted by the Ministry of Peace. The war with these major powers constantly changes which power it is with. It's never with both Eurasia and East Asia. It's one or the other, and it's constantly changing. Um, And he helps report 
that it has never changed. They've always been at war with whoever they are currently at war with. His greatest fear is the thought police, who he worries will arrest him and send him to the Ministry of Love to be tortured. And that should give you the essential idea of how language works in this novel. Ministry of Peace, Ministry of Truth, Ministry of Love. Lies, war, torture. It's all about doublethink. Doublethink, of course, is a Newspeak word. Newspeak, of course, is the official new language of Oceania. And for my money, these two concepts are more horrifying than the thought police themselves. The Ministry of Love and Room 101 all at once. The reason I say this is even though the violent methods can destroy a person or destroy a person's mind, as finally happens with poor Winston, what Newspeak and Doublethink do is destroy ideas, concepts, and thoughts. And when an idea is gone, when there is no word for it anymore, when the last generation that knew that idea is dead, can that idea even come back? Or worse, did it ever exist at all? The control of language is the control of reality. It allows for the control of the past. In the first chapter, we are in introduced to, quote, the three slogans of the party. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. This is our first real introduction to the tenets of Doublethink. Like the names of the three ministries, the slogans are immediately contradictory. But unlike the ministry names, these are not lies. For they are examples of Doublethink, the critical party policy in which an individual intentionally sacrifices logic and is able to keep it. Two contradictory thoughts in his head at the same time. And also willingly accept both contradictions as true. How is this possible? Because the party controls more than the society they live in. It controls the information. It controls history. And we are told fundamentally that, quote, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. This is more significant than the reader realizes when first told in these early chapters and truly doesn't land home until subsequent reads. What if information and history, the facts, are controlled, even created or destroyed? And what if those in control have a specific agenda, the retention of power, and will alter and eliminate and fabricate any facts for their own purposes? Well, then truth ceases to exist. There is only subjectivity. There is only the truth you are fed. Quote, For how could you establish the most obvious fact when there existed no record outside your own memory? The facts are controlled. They become part of a narrative, and that narrative is controlled. Eliminate a frame of reference. Eliminate any means of cross-referencing ideas, and you have complete control of all time, past, present, and future. How, you ask? There are people in our real world paranoid enough to think that the so-called mainstream media is capable of this, but that tends to be the response of the desperate, the sort of people who get their news from Facebook posts and YouTube. In reality, People like that don't see their own opinions backed up by the news, and rather than question their opinions, they decide the news must be lying, that they live in some kind of a airstrip one. That's 
sadly, not reality. That's the slippery slope of confirmation bias. But in Winston's world, it's different. Because in Winston's world, you have doublethink. Quote, To know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which cancelled out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. To use logic against logic. To repudiate morality while laying claim to it. To believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy. To forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then promptly to forget it again, and above all, to apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate subtlety. Consciously to induce unconsciousness, and then, once again, to be unconscious of the fact of hypnosis you had just performed. Even to understand the word doublethink involved. The use of doublethink. Can I just take a moment to point out that one of the things this book doesn't get enough credit for is Orwell's style? Dude's a good writer. On top of his ideas, like these are concept books. 1984, Animal Farm, they're concept books. And their concepts are big and it's horrifying how they are even more applicable than the time they were satirizing. They were supposed to be satirizing his own time period um, uh, or what could come out of it in 1984's case. Dude, like that's a passage and a half I just quoted. Anyways, Winston is able to show the reader the mechanics of doublethink because he works in the Ministry of Truth where he helps support whatever the current story is. If Big Brother or another member of the inner party says anything that contradicts a point they've made at some other uh, moment in the past, up to including which other superstate Oceania is currently at war with, Winston and the other members of the army of writers have to make the new truth the truth that has always existed. Quote, but you could prove nothing. There was never any evidence. Winston knows he's creating lies. He knows that he's helping the party he despises, but he even enjoys what he does because he's good at it. When he lets go of the fact that he's propping up a totalitarian state, he enjoys the idiosyncrasies of his work. He creates an unperson named Comrade Ogilvy with a complete and detailed backstory, a complete list of heroic acts and accolades from Big Brother. Then he sits back with satisfaction because, quote, Comrade Ogilvy, unimagined an hour ago, was now a fact. It struck him as curious that you could create dead men but not living ones. Comrade Ogilvy, who had never existed in the present, now existed in the past. And when once the act of forgery was forgotten, he would exist just as authentically and upon the same evidence as Charlemagne or Julius Caesar. Central to the party's control, central to the the tenets of Ingsoc, English Socialism, and central to doublethink itself is newspeak. In fact, doublethink is a newspeak word. Newspeak is the official language of of Oceania. It's uh, it's, It's a formal language. It's not the vernacular yet. 
But it's so complex and important to the flow of the narrative that Orwell added an appendix on how it works at the end of the book. In essence, it takes the most complex language on the planet and attempts to streamline it. Redundant or overly connotative words are removed. Prefixes are given to do the work of rich synonyms. Words such as well and bad are considered redundant and replaced with goodwise and ungood, respectively. Good expresses the only idea needed, and better than good is double or double plus good. Bad doesn't properly encapsulate the absence of good, so ungood is used instead. And bad ceases to exist, which is too bad. Sorry, no more jokes. Remove a word from the language for a couple of generations and it ceases to exist, especially considering considering that there are no records of it. Remember, all data is controlled. Eliminate a word and the subtleties of ideas that it represents go away. If you have no word for, say, pride, can pride exist if no one knows what it is or what it was? We are told in this appendix that, quote, countless other words, such as honor, justice, morality, internationalism, democracy, science, and religion, had simply ceased to exist. One thing that a reader can forget when considering a novel mostly about dystopian war and the retention of power is how much this book recognizes the importance of the power of our language. Eliminate subtle distinctions and you eliminate what they stand for. Given enough time, it's like they never were ever there. Newspeak, in its 11th edition in Winston's time, hopes to have entirely eliminated old speak, which is traditional English, by 2050, so 66 years after the events of 1984, if they take place in 1984. Approaching English like a mathematical equation butchers and neuters it. When Winston goes to the cafeteria at work, he sits with a man named Sim. A character whose purpose is to introduce us to the basic ideas of Newspeak from the perspective of a fan of it and a creator, uh, somebody who works on it. The irony is Sim is a specialist in Newspeak, but he's also a philologist. Philologists are language experts, people who trace the roots of words to their sources, people who write dictionaries, people who preserve language. They don't destroy it. The The greatest philologist, the most famous anyways, of all time was J.R.R. Tolkien, who created an entire mythology to suit his understanding and creation of language. Sim is, is a, well, a philologist who destroys language is just like a ministry of peace that conducts a war. Sim outlines the beauty of the horror that is his work while talking to Winston. Quote, Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. Every concept that can ever be needed will be expressed by exactly one word, with its meaning rigidly defined and all its subsidiary meanings rubbed out and forgotten. Already, in the 11th edition, we're not far from that point. 
but the process will still be continuing long after you and I are dead. Every year, fewer and fewer words and the range of consciousness always a little smaller. Even now, of course, there's no reason or excuse for committing thought crime. It's merely a question of self-discipline, reality control. But in the end, there won't be any need even for that. The revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. Newspeak is Ingsoc, and Ingsoc is Newspeak. Has it ever occurred to you, Winston, that by the year 2050, at the very latest, not a single human being will be alive who could understand such a conversation as we are having now? The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in Newspeak versions. Not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. How could you have a slogan like freedom as slavery when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Yeah. Sim knows his stuff, but like anyone who's smart and has expertise within a totalitarian state, that will cost him. And uh, Winston thinks to himself later, quote, One of these days, thought Winston with sudden deep conviction, Sim will be vaporized. He is too intelligent. He sees too clearly and speaks too plainly. The party does not like such people. One day he will disappear. It is written in his face. Written in his face. The man who destroys writing has writing indicating his own destruction. Writing that would horrify Sim for its proclaiming his doom. But because it's figurative, it shouldn't exist. Orwell wrote a novel about what he predicted Stalinist communism would do if it spread. That's what his main purpose was. That he created Winston Smith and Julia in a narrative, as a narrative vessel for his ideas is a gift to the reader, especially that he has such a monumental ability with prose. When Winston's narrative, when the arc carries out to its obvious, inevitable, and necessary tragic climax at the Ministry of Truth, we should be saddened, but not surprised. Not even disappointed, because we need... This, we need this uh, anti-catharsis, this horrible moment. Um, we need it because we need to get the truth that the character O'Brien, who Winston initially trusted and, of course, turns out to be a member of the inner party and an and a actor in the thought police, we need what O'Brien says while he's interrogating Winston. Um, if that's the word. It's a re-education, I suppose, but the interesting thing is his interrogation is as much a confession about what the party and what the, the state truly are. The process is horrifying in its simplicity. Winston will adopt doublethink. He will embrace the party principles as undeniable truth. He will stop performing thought crime. He will come to love Big Brother. He will that's the term, because he will do it willingly of his own free will, not coerced. Uh, 
He will want to do it. O'Brien presents reality to Winston in a simple set of brutal statements. Winston rails against it, admirably resisting O'Brien's clinical list of truths. When Winston says that the party can't control his memories, O'Brien says, on the contrary, you have not controlled it. That is what you that is what has brought you here. You are here because you have failed in humility and self-discipline. You would not make the act of submission, which is the price of sanity. You prefer to be a lunatic, a minority of one. Only the disciplined mind can see reality, Winston. You believe that reality is something objective, external, existing in its own right. You also believe that the nature of reality is self-evident. When you delude yourself into thinking that you see something, you assume that everyone else sees the same thing as you. But I tell you, Winston, that reality is not external. Reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else. Not in the individual mind, which can make mistakes, and in any case, soon perishes. Only in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. Whatever the party holds to be truth is truth. It is impossible to see reality except by looking through the eyes of the party. That is the fact that you have got to relearn, Winston. It needs an act of self-destruction, an effort of the will. You must humble yourself before you can become sane. What follows through the majority of this section are are more speeches like this from O'Brien. Um, showing Winston what truth and reality really are in Oceania to the people of Oceania. Like the infamous Goldstein essay near the end of section two, it is what makes this a different sort of novel. It's special. It's also what tends to alienate many readers who just want to pick up a novel. But what Orwell is doing is showing the mechanics of this world. He's answering the questions the novel has asked for 250 pages. The reader has hoped this was the sort of dystopian novel where a victory takes place. Or a catastrophe. It's not. The system will not be overthrown because it's too perfect. Everything is accounted for. And Winston is simply its latest victim. Or its latest convert, if you like. Let me read one last spectacular speech uh, in a collection of them from O'Brien. But this is, this is the, the last one I'll share with you. Quote, Do you begin to see then what kind of a world we are creating? It is the exact opposite of the stupid hedonistic utopias that the old reformers imagined. A world of fear and treachery and torment, a world of trampling and being trampled upon, a world which will grow not less but more merciless as it refines itself. Progress in our world will be progress toward more pain. The old civilizations claimed that they were founded on love and justice. Ours is founded upon hatred. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph, and self-abasement. Everything else we shall destroy. Everything. Already we are breaking down the habits of thought which have survived from before the revolution. We have cut the links between child and parent and between man and man and between man and woman. No one dares trust a wife or a child or a friend any longer. 
But in the future, there will be no wives and no friends. Children will be taken from their mothers at birth as one takes eggs from a hen. The sex instinct will be eradicated. Procreation will be an annual formality like the renewal of a ration card. We shall abolish the orgasm. Our neurologists are at work upon it now. There will be no loyalty except loyalty toward the party. There will be no love except the love of Big Brother. There will be no laughter except the laugh of triumph over a defeated enemy. There will be no art, no literature, no science. When we are omnipotent, we shall have no more need of science. There will be no distinction between beauty and ugliness. There will be no curiosity, no enjoyment of the process of life. All competing pleasures will be destroyed. But always, do not forget this, Winston. Always, there will be the intoxication of power. Constantly increasing and constantly growing subtler. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory. The sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stomping on a human face forever. Scary. And something to note is, um, of course, the term utopia, which uh, famously translates to nowhere, right? Utopia, this perfect heaven on earth, it can't exist. You know, it traces back to... uh, Thomas More uh, in the Middle Ages and concepts even earlier in the ancient Greeks. But the concept of a dystopia didn't really appear in, in popular fiction in any way until the 20th century. Utopias, worlds that were better, um, where everything was heavenly, were still very con- uh, current in you know Jules Verne um, and, and, and writers like that through the 19th century. But it was only with World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, nuclear war, the Cold War, the catastrophes that we perpetuated in the early part of the 20th century that we also had a reflective idea of where this could lead, the dystopia, right? An imperfect uh, or perfectly awful uh, reality and state and situation and world. And that's what Winston, or, uh, O'Brien is describing. It's scary. And not because it's in a predictive work of fiction from 1948, a science fiction dystopian novel. No, it's scary because it sounds so much like our reality. Take any modern politician and how does he succeed? How does he thrive? By vilifying the other guy. By making you despise those who support the person he despises. There are no contrary opinions. There are only enemies. Politicians lie and twist their lies, and some, when they're caught, renege, though unwillingly. But then you get the truly remarkable ones, like Donald Trump, who present lies so loudly, so adamantly, who contradict facts and themselves so openly that we wonder how anyone can believe them. And anyone who lies that confidently is always going to draw people in because they just can't believe it's a lie if it's said with such confidence. What Trump is too stupid to realize that Stalin and Hitler did was all you need is the whole system to get on board with changing the the story to suit your mood. 
Telescreens watching us? That's cute. We carry two-way supercomputers with cameras and microphones in our back pockets. They can track us from space. Pornography is a distraction that's slightly illegal? That's cute. We have 90% of the internet dedicated to it absolutely free and readily accessible for children. Loud propaganda? That's cute. Fox News and MSNBC and CNN spend more time attacking contrary opinions than presenting news. A disinterested proletarian public? That's cute. More people care about Adriana Grande's last Instagram post than the mountain of plastic that is choking the Pacific Ocean. The problem with 1984 is not how much of our current world is predicted correctly, but how far even George Orwell fell short of predicting what would one day be our truth. Thank you for listening today, and if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and the middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.